Volume the Third, Chapter Twelve of Caleb Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Darvinia. Caleb Williams by William Godwin. Volume the Third, Chapter Twelve. It was not long before I took my everlasting leave of this detested and miserable scene. My heart was for the present too full of astonishment and exultation in my unexpected deliverance to admit of anxiety about the future. I withdrew from the town. I rambled with a slow and thoughtful pace, now bursting with exclamation, and now buried in profound and undefinable reverie. Accident led me towards the very heath which had first sheltered me, when upon a former occasion I broke out of my prison. I wandered among its cavities and its valleys. It was a forlorn and desolate solitude. I continued here I know not how long. Night at length overtook me unperceived, and I prepared to return for the present to the town I had quitted. It was now perfectly dark when two men, whom I had not previously observed, sprung upon me from behind. They seized me by the arms and threw me upon the ground. I had no time for resistance or recollection. I could, however, perceive that one of them was the diabolical Gines. They blindfolded, gagged me, and hurried me I knew not whither. As we passed along in silence, I endeavoured to conjecture what could be the meaning of this extraordinary violence. I was strongly impressed with the idea that after the event of this morning the most severe and painful part of my history was past and, strange as it may seem, I could not persuade myself to regard with alarm this unexpected attack. It might, however, be some new project, suggested by the brutal temper and unrelenting animosity of Gines. I presently found that we were returned into the town I had just quitted. They led me into a house, and, as soon as they had taken possession of a room, freed me from the restraints they had before imposed. Here Gines informed me, with a malicious grin, that no harm was intended me, and therefore I should show most sense in keeping myself quiet. I perceived that we were in an inn. I overheard company in a room at no great distance from us, and therefore was now as thoroughly aware as I could be that there was at present little reason to stand in fear of any species of violence, and that it would be time enough to resist— when they attempted to conduct me from the inn, in the same manner they had brought me into it. I was not without some curiosity to see the conclusion that was to follow upon so extraordinary a commencement. The preliminaries I have described were scarcely completed before Mr. Falkland entered the room. I remember Collins, when he first communicated to me the particulars of our patron's history, observed that he was totally unlike the man he had once been. I had no means of ascertaining the truth of that observation. But it was strikingly applicable to the spectacle which now presented itself to my eyes, though when I last beheld this unhappy man he had been a victim to the same passions, a prey to the same undying remorse, as now. Misery was at that time inscribed in legible characters upon his countenance, but now he appeared like nothing that had ever been visible in human shape. His visage was haggard, emaciated, and fleshless. 
His complexion was a dun and tarnished red, the colour uniform through every region of the face, and suggested the idea of its being burnt and parched by the eternal fire that burned within him. His eyes were red, quick, wandering, full of suspicion and rage. His hair was neglected, ragged, and floating. His whole figure was thin, to a degree that suggested the idea rather of a skeleton than a person actually alive. Life seemed hardly to be the capable inhabitant of so woe-begone and ghost-like a figure. The taper of wholesome life was expired, but passion and fierceness and frenzy were able for the present to supply its place. I was to the utmost degree astonished and shocked at the sight of him. He sternly commanded my conductors to leave the room. "'Well, sir, I have this day successfully exerted myself to save your life from the gallows. A fortnight ago you did what you were able to bring my life to that ignominious close. Were you so stupid and undistinguishing as not to know that the preservation of your life was the uniform object of my exertions? Did not I maintain you in prison? Did not I endeavour to prevent your being sent thither?' Could you mistake the bigoted and obstinate conduct of Forrester in offering a hundred guineas for your apprehension, for mine? I had my eye upon you in all your wanderings. You have taken no material step through their whole course with which I have not been acquainted. I meditated to do you good. I have spilt no blood but that of Tyrrell. That was in the moment of passion." and it has been the subject of my uninterrupted and hourly remorse. I have connived at no man's fate but that of the Hawkinses. They could no otherwise have been saved than by my acknowledging myself a murderer. The rest of my life has been spent in acts of benevolence. I meditated to do you good. For that reason I was willing to prove you. You pretended to act towards me with consideration and forbearance. If you had persisted in that to the end, I would yet have found a way to reward you. I left you to your own discretion. You might show the impotent malignity of your own heart, but in the circumstances in which you were then placed, I knew you could not hurt me. Your forbearance has proved, as I all along suspected, empty and treacherous. You have attempted to blast my reputation. You have sought to disclose the select and eternal secret of my soul. Because you have done that, I will never forgive you. I will remember it to my latest breath. The memory shall survive me when my existence is no more. Do you think you are out of the reach of my power, because a court of justice has acquitted you? While Mr. Falkland was speaking, a sudden distemper came over his countenance, his whole frame was shaken by an instantaneous convulsion, and he staggered to a chair. In about three minutes he recovered. "'Yes,' said he, "'I am still alive. I shall live for days, and months, and years. The power that made me, of whatever kind it be, can only determine how long. I live the guardian of my reputation, that, and to endure a misery such as man never endured, are the only ends to which I live. But when I am no more, my fame shall still survive. 
my character shall be revered as spotless and unimpeachable by all posterity, as long as the name of Falkland shall be repeated in the most distant regions of the many-peopled globe. Having said this, he returned to the discourse which more immediately related to my future condition and happiness. "'There is one condition,' said he, "'upon which you may obtain some mitigation of your future calamity. "'It is for that purpose that I have sent for you. "'Listen to my proposal with deliberation and sobriety. "'Remember that the insanity is not less to trifle with the resolved determination of my soul.' than it would be to pull a mountain upon your head that hung trembling upon the edge of the mighty Apennine. I insist, then, upon your signing a paper, declaring, in the most solemn manner, that I am innocent of murder, and that the charge you alleged at the office in Bow Street is false, malicious, and groundless. Perhaps you may scruple out of a regard to truth, is truth, then, entitled to adoration for its own sake, and not for the sake of the happiness it is calculated to produce? Will a reasonable man sacrifice to barren truth, when benevolence, humanity, and every consideration that is dear to the human heart require that it should be superseded? It is probable that I may never make use of this paper." but I require it as the only practicable reparation to the honour you have assailed. This is what I had to propose. I expect your answer. Sir, answered I, I have heard you to an end, and I stand in need of no deliberation to enable me to answer you in the negative. You took me up a raw and inexperienced boy, capable of being moulded to any form you pleased, but you have communicated to me volumes of experience in a very short period. I am no longer irresolute and pliable. What is the power you retain over my fate I am unable to discover? You may destroy me, but you cannot make me tremble. I am not concerned to inquire whether what I have suffered flowed from you by design or otherwise. Whether you were the author of my miseries, or only connived at them, this I know, that I have suffered too exquisitely on your account for me to feel the least remaining claim on your part to my making any voluntary sacrifice. You say that benevolence and humanity require this sacrifice of me. No, it would only be a sacrifice to your mad and misguided love of fame, to that passion which has been the source of all your miseries, of the most tragical calamities to others, and of every misfortune that has happened to me. I have no forbearance to exercise towards that passion. If you be not yet cured of this tremendous and sanguinary folly, at least I will do nothing to cherish it. I know not whether from my youth I was destined for a hero, but I may thank you for having taught me a lesson of insurmountable fortitude." What is it that you require of me, that I should sign away my own reputation for the better maintaining of yours? Where's the equality of that? What is it that casts me at such an immense distance below you, as to make everything that relates to me wholly unworthy of consideration? You have been educated in the prejudice of birth. I abhor that prejudice. 
You have made me desperate, and I utter what that desperation suggests. You will tell me, perhaps, that I have no reputation to lose, that while you are esteemed faultless and unblemished, I am universally reputed a thief, a suborner, and a calumniator. Be it so. I will never do anything to countenance those imputations. The more I am destitute of the esteem of mankind, the more careful I will be to preserve my own. I will never, from fear or any other mistaken motive, do anything of which I ought to be ashamed. You are determined to be for ever my enemy. I have in no degree deserved this eternal abhorrence. I have always esteemed and pitied you. For a considerable time I rather chose to expose myself to every kind of misfortune, than disclose the secret that was so dear to you. I was not deterred by your menaces. What could you make me suffer more than I actually suffered? But by the humanity of my own heart, in which, and not in means of violence, you ought to have reposed your confidence. What is the mysterious vengeance that you can yet execute against me? You menaced me before. You can menace no worse now. You are wearing out the springs of terror. Do with me as you please. You teach me to hear you with an unshrinking and desperate firmness. Recollect yourself. I did not proceed to the step with which you reproach me till I was apparently urged to the very last extremity. I had suffered as much as human nature can suffer. I had lived in the midst of eternal alarm and unintermitted watchfulness. I had twice been driven to purposes of suicide. I am now sorry, however, that the step of which you complain was ever adopted. But urged to exasperation by an unintermitted rigour, I had no time to cool or to deliberate. Even at present I cherish no vengeance against you. All that is reasonable all that can really contribute to your security I will readily concede, but I will not be driven to an act repugnant to all reason, integrity, and justice. Mr. Falkland listened to me with astonishment and impatience. He had entertained no previous conception of the firmness I displayed. Several times he was convulsed with the fury that laboured in his breast. Once and again he betrayed an intention to interrupt but he was restrained by the collectedness of my manner, and perhaps by a desire to be acquainted with the entire state of my mind. Finding that I had concluded, he paused for a moment. His passion seemed gradually to enlarge, till it was no longer capable of control. "'It is well,' said he, gnashing his teeth and stamping upon the ground. "'You refuse the composition I offer. I have no power to persuade you to compliance.' You defy me. At least I have a power respecting you, and that power I will exercise, a power that shall grind you into atoms. I condescend to no more expostulation. I know what I am and what I can be. I know what you are and what fate is reserved for you. Saying this, he quitted the room. Such were the particulars of this memorable scene. The impression it has left upon my understanding is indelible. The figure and appearance of Mr. Falkland, his death-like weakness and decay, his more than mortal energy and rage, 
the words that he spoke, the motives that animated him, produced one compounded effect upon my mind that nothing of the same nature could ever parallel. The idea of his misery thrilled through my frame. How weak in comparison of it is the imaginary hell, which the great enemy of mankind is represented as carrying everywhere about with him! From this consideration my mind presently turned to the menaces he had vented against myself. They were all mysterious and undefined. He had talked of power, but had given no hint from which I could collect in what he imagined it to consist. He had talked of misery, but had not dropped a syllable respecting the nature of the misery to be inflicted. I sat still for some time, ruminating on these thoughts. Neither Mr. Falkland nor any other person appeared to disturb my meditations. I rose, went out of the room, and from the inn into the street. No one offered to molest me. It was strange. What was the nature of this power from which I was to apprehend so much, yet which seemed to leave me at perfect liberty? I began to imagine that all I had heard from this dreadful adversary was mere madness and extravagance, and that he was at length deprived of the use of reason, which had long served him only as a medium of torment. Yet was it likely in that case that he should be able to employ Gines and his associate, who had just been his instruments of violence upon my person? I proceeded along the streets with considerable caution. I looked before me and behind me, as well as the darkness would allow me to do, that I might not again be hunted in sight by some men of stratagem and violence, without my perceiving it. I went not, as before, beyond the limits of the town, but considered the streets, the houses, and the inhabitants, as affording some degree of security. I was still walking with my mind thus full of suspicion and forecast, when I discovered Thomas, that servant of Mr. Falkland, whom I have already more than once had occasion to mention. He advanced towards me with an air so blunt and direct, as instantly to remove from me the idea of anything insidious in his purpose. Besides that, I had always felt the character of Thomas, rustic and uncultivated as it was, to be entitled to a more than common portion of esteem. "'Thomas,' said I, as he advanced, I hope you are willing to give me joy, that I am at length delivered from the dreadful danger which for many months haunted me so unmercifully. No, rejoined Thomas roughly, I be not at all willing. I do not know what to make of myself in this affair. While you were in prison in that miserable fashion, I felt all at one almost as if I loved you, and now that that is over, and you are turned out loose in the world to do your worst, my blood rises at the very sight of you. To look at you, you are almost that very lad Williams, for whom I could with pleasure, as it were, have laid down my life. And yet behind that smiling face there lie robbery, and lying, and everything that is ungrateful and murderous. Your last action was worse than all the rest." How could you find it in your heart to revive that cruel story about Mr. Tyrrell, which everybody had agreed, out of regard to the squire, never to mention again, and of which I know, and you know, 
he is as innocent as the child unborn. There are causes and reasons, or else I could have wished from the bottom of my soul never to have set eyes on you again. And you still persist in your hard thoughts of me? Worse! I think worse of you than ever! Before I thought you as bad as man could be. I wonder from my soul what you are to do next. But you make good the old saying, Needs must go that the devil drives. And so there is never to be an end of my misfortunes. What can Mr. Falkland contrive for me, worse than the ill opinion and enmity of all mankind? Mr. Falkland contrive? He is the best friend you have in the world, though you are the basest traitor to him. Poor man! It makes one's heart ache to look at him. He is the very image of grief, and it is not clear to me that it is not all owing to you. At least you have given the finishing lift to the misfortune that was already destroying him. There have been the devil and all to pay between him and Squire Forrester. The squire is right raving mad with my master, for having outwitted him in the matter of the trial, and saved your life. He swears that you shall be taken up and tried all over again at the next assizes, but my master is resolute, and I believe will carry it his own way. He says, indeed, that the law will not allow Squire Forrester to have his will in this. To see him ordering everything for your benefit, and taking all your maliciousness as mild and innocent as a lamb, and to think of your vile proceedings against him, is a sight one shall not see again go all the world over. For God's sake repent of your reprobate doings, and make what little reparation is in your power. Think of your poor soul before you awake, as to be sure one of these days you will, in fire and brimstone everlasting. Saying this, he held out his hand and took hold of mine. The action seemed strange, but I at first thought it the unpremeditated result of his solemn and well-intended adjuration. I felt, however, that he put something into my hand. The next moment he quitted his hold, and hastened from me with the swiftness of an arrow. What he had thus given me was a banknote of twenty pounds. I had no doubt that he had been charged to deliver it to me from Mr. Falkland. What was I to infer? What light did it throw upon the intentions of my inexorable persecutor? His animosity against me was as great as ever. That I had just had confirmed to me from his own mouth. Yet his animosity appeared to be still tempered with the remains of humanity. He prescribed it to a line, wide enough to embrace the gratification of his views, and within the boundaries of that line it stopped. But this discovery carried no consolation to my mind. I knew not what portion of calamity I was fated to endure, before his jealousy of dishonour and inordinate thirst of fame would deem themselves satisfied. Another question offered itself. Was I to receive the money which had just been put into my hands, the money of a man who had inflicted upon me injuries, less than those which he had entailed upon himself, but the greatest that one man can inflict upon another, who had blasted my youth, who had destroyed my peace, 
who had held me up to the abhorrence of mankind, and rendered me an outcast upon the face of the earth, who had forced the basest and most atrocious falsehoods, and urged them with a seriousness and perseverance which produced universal belief, who, an hour before, had vowed against me inexorable enmity, and sworn to entail upon me misery without end? Would not this conduct on my part betray a base and abject spirit that crouched under tyranny, and kissed the hands that were imbrued in my blood? If these reasons appeared strong, neither was the other side without reasons in reply. I wanted the money, not for any purpose of vice or superfluity, but for those purposes without which life cannot subsist. Man ought to be able, wherever placed, to find for himself the means of existence. But I was to open a new scene of life, to remove to some distant spot, to be prepared against all the ill-will of mankind, and the unexplored projects of hostility of a most accomplished foe. The actual means of existence are the property of all, what should hinder me from taking that of which I was really in want, when, in taking it, I risked no vengeance, and perpetrated no violence? The property in question will be beneficial to me, and the voluntary surrender of it is accompanied with no injury to its late proprietor. What other condition can be necessary to render the use of it on my part a duty? He that lately possessed it has injured me. Does that alter its value as a medium of exchange? He will boast, perhaps, of the imaginary obligation he has conferred on me. Surely to shrink from a thing in itself right from any such apprehension can be the result only of pusillanimity and cowardice. End of chapter 12 of Volume the Third.